Welcome to the Field Dynamics Podcast. We're here to facilitate inspiring dialogues about the nature of consciousness across disciplines, communities, and practitioners, all with a holistic perspective. From energy healing to somatic therapies, from neuroscience to meditation, we believe the most interesting things happen at the boundaries of disciplines. I'm Christabel. And I'm Keith. Thanks for joining us today and enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Field Dynamics Podcast. Today we are joined by Robert Moss, who describes himself as a dream teacher. He is the creator of Active Dreaming, an original synthesis of dream work and shamanism. A former lecturer in ancient history at the Australian National University, he is a best-selling novelist, journalist, and independent scholar. Born in Australia, he survived three near-death experiences in childhood. He has published 12 books on dreaming, shamanism, and imagination, including Conscious Dreaming, A Spiritual Path for Everyday Life, which was his first and foundational book introducing his marriage of shamanism and dream work. A central premise of Robert's approach is that dreaming isn't just what happens during sleep. Dreaming is waking up to the sources of guidance, healing, and creativity beyond the reach of the everyday mind. He has led seminars at the Esalen Institute, Kripalu, the Omega Institute, the New York Open Center, and many others. He has appeared on many TV and radio shows, including the Today Show and Coast to Coast. His books have been published in more than 20 foreign languages. Thank you, Robert, so much for joining us today. Happy to have you. Good to be dreaming with you both. So in this shared dream, uh, you do have quite an incredible background story in coming into this kind of work, uh, tracking back to those seminal experiences in early childhood. Just wonder as a starting point, if we could open with a little of your story, your personal story, and how you came to doing this kind of work. Well, thank you. Well, I suppose it began when I was three years old and was pronounced clinically dead in a bitter winter in Tasmania, Australia. Then I came back, back and the doctor said with some embarrassment, oh, you kid, he died and he came back, didn't he? Uh, I don't remember much of what happened when I was out of my body that time. I do know it's rather hard to operate the body afterwards. When I was nine, it happened again, this time under emergency surgery for an appendectomy in a Melbourne hospital. And this time I remembered I'm out of my body. It sounds like a classic MBE, though we didn't have that phrase to begin with. I'm looking down at the body and the bleeding and the nurses gossiping and I don't want to be there. And I wander down the corridor and there's my mother grieving and I don't want to be present to that. I'm an only child, I feel guilty. We get out on the beach, I can see the line of the Melbourne shore. I want to do what a red-blooded nine-year-old Aussie boy would do, play, go to the fun park, go to Luna Park just for fun. So here I am now out of my body, I've forgotten about my body. I'm at the moon face that is the gate of the theme park, Luna Park in, in Australia. And I go through and suddenly, whoops, I'm not on the ghost train. I thought I was. I'm in another world and I'm amongst beautiful, very elongated beings who welcome me as their own. And I'm absorbed into their life. I seem to live a full life. I seem to become some kind of elder amongst these people, some kind of shaman, maybe. And then uh, it's time to leave that body. Enough of that. And I think I'm going to a home star, but whoops. I'm back in the body of a nine-year-old boy in a Melbourne hospital who's again being pronounced clinically dead, and I remember. Now, this is an information that's easy to work or play with in those days. We didn't have the term near-death experience, and I still don't think it applies to what happened to me. I think I died and came back. But what has happened is I know for certain sure through first-hand experience, which is the only way you can know these things, that there are worlds beyond the physical. 
and I've, from that time onwards, it's quite normal for me to see people who've died in, in, in my dreams, to see ancestral figures, to travel in, in other realms. And the, the first person I could find who'd give me any kind of confirmation or validation, state-specific scientific understanding, Keith, was an Aboriginal kid who said to me, very matter of fact, oh, yeah, we do that. We get sick. We go and live with the spirits, don't we? When we come back, sometimes we're the same, sometimes we're not. So that's, in a sense, where it begins. And just one other anecdote from boyhood. I'm now about 14, I guess. And I'm receiving visitations from a radiant young man, beautiful young man, it seems, who insists on speaking Greek. This is typical in my dreams. People insist on speaking languages I do not know or don't know very much of. And he tells me that all knowledge that matters comes through anamnesis, which you'll find in an English dictionary. It means remembering. But in the doctrine of the philosophers, the Pythagorean doctrine, the Platonic doctrine, anamnesis means soul remembering. It means remembering what knowledge belongs to you on the level of noose of mind, of higher mind, on the level of higher intelligence. And that has informed my approach to things ever since. So that was one of the seminal moments. In midlife, I had a bunch of experiences on a farm in upstate New York. We can talk about those if you like which led me to read this and to leave the successful life I'd been leading, which was guided by dreams, but one in which I didn't talk too much about these things because I grew up in a conservative era in a military family. You didn't run around shouting from the rooftops. Guess what? I've been traveling outside the body again. Guess what? I've been flying on the wings of a red-tailed hawk. I did that later on. I did that later on in midlife, and I've been doing it ever since. And you say, I call myself a dream teacher. Keith, I'm teaching dream teachers. We've graduated 300 uh, dream teachers, teachers active dreaming at level three of the training. It's going on all over the world. So it's not just me who uses the phrase anymore. At the outset, yes, yes, I was about the only person talking about dream teachers, but now it's an international phenomenon. And I think a gentle evolution, I won't say revolution, a gentle evolution, a contribution to reclaiming modes of knowledge that our ancestors knew about but were somehow lost. Thank you, Robert. Um, yes, certainly, we'd, we'd love to hear more about this uh, series or sequence of visionary events that unfolded, I believe, uh, 87 to 88 for you, and how that um, went on to develop, or how you went on to develop from there, active dreaming, this synthesis of dream work and shamanic methods of journeying and healing. Well, I hope you like stories, Christopher. I love stories. I live by stories. I think all humans do. If you don't have a story, you're probably not doing very well. So I'll tell this with a little bit of pacing as it deserves. So in the mid-80s, 86, I started up with the life I was leading. I'm a New York Times best-selling thriller writer, and I'm bored to death. So I go looking for a piece of the country that I've adopted to learn the land. And I find a farm, quite a lot of land, with a rundown farmhouse in the upper Hudson Valley of New York, edge of traditional Mohawk Indian country. And I'm wondering whether I should buy it. I don't know anyone up here. It's too far from New York City to commute to my old haunts and my publishers. And I sit down behind an old white oak tree behind the house, wondering if there will be a sign. And a red-tailed hawk drops over my head, circling lower and lower, screaming, squalling, Get in a language I might be able to understand, but I don't. And it drops a feather between my knees. Okay. Not the only reason I bought the farm, but purchased the farm, but <coughs> was a key reason. And now I'm living on the land and I'm dreaming with the ancestors of the land, particularly an Irishman who came to the New York province in the 1700s. There's a distant family connection of mine, literally, but also joined by affinity in other ways. And I'm dreaming of him 
and the Native Americans he knew, particularly the Mohawk at Kanyakahaka. And one night I'm drifting out of my body, not unusual for me, and I find myself flying on the wings, it seems, of the red-tailed hawk. <clears throat> and I'm flying north, north, north towards Canada, but there are no highways. Somewhere near Montreal, but there's no modern city. I find myself in a cabin in the woods where the beautiful older native woman who speaks her own language, it's like lake water lapping, wave upon wave, it's beautiful. She is holding over her shoulder and stroking as she speaks a beaded belt. Not this one, but it gives you the idea. And I notice that on the belt, there is a she-wolf and human figures, male and female. Romulus and Remus, no, wrong culture. I don't know what it is. And I come back from this lucid dream, <coughs> this lucid dream excursion, filled with excitement and also with the sense that more will reveal itself. I don't really have to work at this. I just have to be available. So the lucid dreams, the visions grow, synchronicity comes into play. I meet my first friend of the Haudenosaunee, the Six Nations of the Longhouse, uh, which the Mohawk, uh, the gatekeepers of the Eastern Door. And I tell him the dream and I show him the picture of the woman with the, with the belt. He says, he, he's working for the New York State Archives at the time. He opens a locked cabinet and says, we've been keeping this and I need to show it to you. We believe these are the clan credentials of the mother of the wolf clan of the Mohawk people from 200 years ago. And there is the belt from my dream and I've drawn it. They match up, there's the, there's the she-wolf, there's the male and female. And he says, in our tradition, if a woman of power and a rondewano, a woman of power is going to speak to you, she will show her, her badge of office, she will show her credentials. So the situation is right. What did I learn from these encounters? I learned a lot and by the way, there's a price to be paid. I had to study the Mohawk language and the Huron language, who was born Huron-Wendat. I had to pick up an old spiritual vocabulary, which isn't in the common language today. People came to me from the native culture for words that had been lost or fallen into desuetude. And the key word that I heard from old Iroquois was ondinok. What does it mean? I found it in a Jesuit document, a report sent back from Huron country in the, in the 1600s. Ondinok is the secret wish of the soul especially as revealed in dreams. And the Jesuits, although terrified of the people they were observing, were honest enough and natural anthropologists to report this, the most important element in the religion, in the spirituality, in the healing of these people is understanding that dreams show you the secret wish of the soul and the job of decent people is to gather around a dreamer, listen to their dream, help them to identify what the soul, as opposed to the ego, is asking for, and serve that or else you get sick and you start missing your vital energy. So here I had in a nutshell, in a clamshell because wampum is made from clams, in a clamshell, here I had an approach, a practice, not just a theory, but a practice of healing and dreaming that went beyond what my dominant culture had taught me, though not what beyond my ancestors and your ancestors knew. I think we all used to know this kind of thing and our culture forgot it. So this is how the spirits of the land, the ancestors of the land called me, ancestors of my bloodlines to the extent that I have a connection, a genealogical connection with that Irishman. And it was through that connection, I think, that the Mohawk in you, the Kanyankahaka, the people of the stone, were able to reach me. And all of this shook me up to put it mildly. I mean, I'm now, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an ancient history professor. I'm an investigative journalist. I know how to do research. I'm doing research. I'm reading everything possible because I love books. I'm acquiring every possible book I can, including the 73 volumes of the Jesuit relations of the reports of the Black Road missionaries where I found the word Ondinok. And I'm realizing as I go along, life is not going to be the same. 
My life is now supercharged. Synchronicity is crackling everywhere. I feel the play of different lives intersecting with this life for good, bad, and mixed. And eventually, I write some historical novels to find a container for some of the stuff. And they're pretty good historical novels. The Firekeeper is probably the, the most accessible of them. And then eventually, as I get myself clearer, I start looking at what's on offer in terms of dream work, what's on offer in terms of shamanic journey and practice. And I find some people from whom I learned a, a few things. But my key teachers are coming through to me in dreams. The, 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 the native woman, the native woman of power, the Rondiwana, who I called island woman in my books because her Mohawk name means she comes from the island. But other people, members of my own ancestry, spiritual teachers on a higher plane. So my, what I'm now learning in order to be a teacher myself is coming from teachers on the inner planes. And it's growing and it's growing and it's growing. And I realize that it's time for us to bring back the dreaming, time for us to learn again how to talk about our dreams and share our dreams and look for clues to soul and survival, which is where people's on the edge, on the edge of the abyss, like the Mohawk in a time of constant war and disease, like they practiced, because these things can keep you alive and make you more alive. So that happening in midlife just led me to think, well, I'm just going to live completely differently. And I've been living completely differently ever since. You mentioned about the importance of direct experience. Um, and maybe that's in opposition or in contrast to something like the intellect, some kind of factual knowing versus a direct knowing. So I'm wondering, as this these experiences are unfolding for you, is this challenging your belief system or reshaping it? How are, how are you personally relating to this unfolding in such a compelling way? And in tandem with that, how do you generally explain this to people in terms of the reality or the plane of experience, planes of experience that can account for the phenomenology of um, the kind of dream work that you're doing, the kind of out-of-body experiences you're having? Well, that's a whole bucket full of questions, and I'll try to deal with them. But let, let's come in on the personal side first. There's no opposition between using the intellect, using factual analysis, using investigative methods, using verification, uh, and experiencing things in a direct way. I, I'm not just lost in a rapture of, gee, wow, that was powerful. Because I'm a researcher and love research, my dreams are constantly giving me specific clues, names from other languages, for example. I mean, I gave an example from the Mohawk language. This has gone on in 50 different languages. It went on in childhood with anamnesis I told you about. So we have different styles of dreaming. Part of my style of dreaming is because I have a very healthy skeptic and questioner, an investigative reporter in my left brain who must be satisfied. I'm given specific information in my dreams and dreamlike experiences, which I can research check on, and generally I find that I'm learning things beyond what I can possibly have had normal access to. So I'm confirming, you know, the fact that we have supernormal facilities, to use an old word that's come back into play. My friend Fred Myers in the Victorian era gave us supernormal. It's back thanks to Dean Radin and people like that. The idea that we have supernormal facilities, which are often blocked and inhibited by our limited imagination in ordinary life, become alive in dreaming when we drop our inhibitions and do it. So I treasure experiences which lead me on a path of the wildest research. And if, when you use the word facts, let's remember what Mr. Jung said about this. He said, quote, dreams are the facts from which we must proceed. Dreams are the facts from which we must proceed. In this field, 
don't give your credence and don't listen very long to someone who's not sharing their own dream life and speaking from direct experience, because what is required here to use language that might appeal to you is state-specific science, methods of investigation and experimentation that are appropriate to the field of research. If you're going to research dreams, yes, you can monitor brainwaves in a laboratory. Yes, you can notice sleep phases. Yes, you can notice what different chemicals do to the brain. Fine, that's like looking inside a TV set for the source of the production, which is not inside the set. The source of the production is in a field of limitless mind, if you like. So how do you explain this to people? Well, I like to challenge them in a creative way by saying that the oldest interpretation, the oldest explanation of dreaming for me remains the best. Dreaming is traveling. You travel beyond the body and the brain and you receive visitations. This is the oldest understanding of dreams. It got forgotten in a lot of Western psychology, but ordinary people recognize, oh yeah, I went somewhere. Yeah, and grandma came visiting, yes. And it's built into the very language of indigenous dreaming peoples. I remember a marvelous passage in Franz Boas's monograph on the Kwakiutl of the Pacific Northwest. He's talking to an elderly Kwakiutl shaman dreamer type. And the shaman dreamer of the Kwakiutl says to Boas, Dreams are the news the souls bring us when they come back from their journeys. How about that? What's wrong with that? I think that actually is the clearest and simplest explanation of a certain kind of dream. Now, there are many kinds of dreams. As one's asked on a radio show, very different from this conversation many years ago. Bottom line it for me, Bob, aren't dreams caused by spicy pizza? Well, my name is not Bob, but I do manage to swallow and stay on the show. I said, yeah, well, some dreams are caused by spicy pizza. Some, call, some dreams are commentary on what went on the day before and how you're feeding or not feeding yourself, etc. And there are many, many forms of dreams. I mean, some dreams are, uh, are fairly literal dreams, the dreams of clarity that Tibetans might say, straight up dreams the Hawaiians would say in which you see things going on in your environment pretty much as they are playing out or will play out in the future. And those dreams really don't require any interpretation. They just require clarifying the details and getting the information straight so you can meet that alluring stranger in that coffee shop next week or avoid that accident at that intersection if you've seen it clearly. Because one of the things you learn through practice is you can travel across time and place in your dreams. In fact, this is part of the survival mechanism of us humans. Back in the days when we were naked apes being hunted for breakfast by leathery raptors and saber-toothed tigers, wasn't safe to sleep unless we had some kind of intuitive radar operating. So there are the literalistic dreams. And we include in that category the routine processing dreams, well, if you like. But in the categories of the interesting categories of dreams, we have the literalistic, realistic dreams that are relatively clear, except you've got to get the, the details straight. Then we have the symbolic dreams. And what's going on in a symbolic dream? Well, maybe you're being educated to think beyond the boxes. Maybe your dream is couched in symbolic language because you've got to get unstuck from your routine attitudes and conceptions and beliefs. So the dream source, your dream producer, and we might have dream producers for some of our dreams, might be trying to grow your understanding of it. One of the great ancient interpreters of dreams, Artemidorus of Daudus, said the gods like to make us sweat with dreams. Why are dreams complicated and subtle and symbolic? Because the gods want us to sweat. They want us to earn our knowledge and expand our thinking. So that might be part of what's going on in symbolic dreams. And in symbolic dreams also, we might, to vary the metaphor, to vary the model, we might also be aware of the play of those hidden dream producers behind the veils of ordinary perception. 
who are actually making productions for us to educate, to shock, to amuse, to do something. And then for me, this is the most interesting category of interesting dreams. They are the dreams that are experiences, direct experiences of other orders of reality. Parallel worlds. In the many worlds hypothesis in physics, it is held positive that we're living right now in one of countless parallel universes. In one close to us, you and I are not having this conversation. Another one, I never became a dream teacher. And so on and so on and so on. You give yourself a headache trying to figure out all the possible permutations. But one of the things going on in dreams is you simply may find yourself there with someone who in regular life you split up with or someone you never got together with, living a life, or you're doing something somewhat different. I never gave up being a best-selling thriller writer, and I'm living that life. I've got a lot more money, and I'm, I'm not, not unhappy, but probably not as satisfied as I am with, with things right now, and so on. And then you travel to realms where the dead are alive. So you asked about beliefs. I'm going to give you the only solid belief I have in relation to all of this, probably. Uh, if you become a dreamer, I mean a real dreamer, which means you're able to enter the dream worlds at will. You can embark on lucid dreaming, if you like, at will. You're aware that you're traveling and you bring back results and you keep a journal and you have that daily practice. Once you start doing that, you'll cease to have any doubt. Any, you will not have any doubt that consciousness survives physical death. You will know that. And you'll also know that there is something before conception, before, 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 before conception. You'll know that the soul, mind, consciousness, spirit has a history and a destiny beyond one span of years. You'll know that, you'll have no doubt about it. It's not a matter of belief because you'll have traveled beyond your body and brain to realms, including those where the dead are alive because you will have entertained perhaps or received visitations from the departed that you know are real. You just have no doubt about that. And I've had no doubt about that all my life. So it's perfectly normal for me to include in my social life visits and visitations with people who have died to this world and sometimes they're family members and friends and sometimes they're people from other times and places drawn we're drawn together by affinity as Yeats with poetic clarity said would happen great minds or like minds like minds will will come together through affinity thank you Robert I'd love to uh, return a little bit to this idea of um, dreams central to, to healing um, you mentioned that for certain North American Indian tribes, they are seen as wishes of the soul, right? Putting us in touch with our deepest spiritual source and, and what it may desire for us. So for a traditional healer, dreams are a vital tool in diagnosis and treatment, perhaps seen as a doorway to the subconscious or shadow or higher awareness. I'd love for you to share more about your perspective on dreams as a healing mechanism right or a mode for healing well there are thank you i mean there are there are at least three interesting aspects uh, of of response to that question the first is that dreams may be diagnostic dreams may be diagnosed or maybe prodromic uh, announcing ahead of time what is going to develop i mean one of the most notorious examples of it for those who've read the literature is freud's own famous dream the irma dream which he said was the foundation of psychoanalysis he dreamed of a patient of his, and he thought it was all about her, who had certain uh, discolorations, scarring, other problems going on in the mouth, which he described in great detail in his long dream report, the Irma report, 28 years later. According to the oncology records recovered from the Library of Congress, Freud had almost identical scarring, malformation, uh, blotches, and so on inside his mouth, signs of the oral cancer, the mouth cancer, that 
had him confined to a terrible prosthetic and then killed him in agony. So it's a very sad story of maybe the long range diagnostic significance of a dream that Freud himself misread. Now on an everyday basis, uh, let me give you an example. Um, often the diagnosis is delivered in, in the dreams of ordinary people under ordinary circumstances by someone who has died by a beloved family member. A friend and I collected uh, dreams of people who'd been diagnosed by doctors with breast cancer, which was a problem she'd encountered and survived. After her father turned up in a dream with someone in a white doctor's coat and said, you have cancer, go to a doctor, which led to the diagnosis, the, the medical diagnosis that led to her healing. Some years ago, in that drifty hypnopompic state, which when you're waking up, but you're not quite there yet, you're drifting in between, I found myself on a high rooftop, and there is my father. And I'm shocked to see him, not because he's dead. We had a fantastic relationship for years after his death. But because he died in 1987, and he told me he was going off to do something else altogether, we wouldn't be in touch. But there he is, looking like a handsome 30-year-old cavalry officer, which is what he used to be. Instantly, I'm in front of him. He points his finger at my upper lip and he says, go to a doctor and have that checked out. I call the dermatology office the same day. Yes, I've got a spotted skin cancer, basal cell, basal cell carcinoma, which can be dealt with if you get to it in time. But my general, my, my doctor, my general physical a month before hadn't noticed anything. I hadn't looked at it. So dad gave me a diagnosis. And when I'd had the surgery, I raised a glass of single malt whiskey. He was a Scot by ancestry. And I said, thank you, dad. So there's a diagnostic function of dreams. And Galen, physician to Marcus Aurelius, the most famous doctor in the Greco-Roman world after Hippocrates, wrote a whole treatise on diagnosis in dreams, describing many, many cases from his time, including a diagnostic dream that he said saved his life. So diagnosis, huge area, huge area. And actually, it solves the problems of nosology, which is the science of diagnosis, the most difficult branch of medicine, my doctor friends tell me. You know, doctors often can't decide on the name for something, and therefore they can't decide on a treatment. Dreams will give us the name. Sometimes they give us the medical terms. Sometimes they give us other ways of imagining, seeing, reviewing the nature of the condition. I remember a woman whose condition could not be diagnosed by the doctors. They could not agree. And a wolf appears in her dream, says, my name is Lupus. Tell the doctors. Well, that not only gave a name, to the condition which they agreed upon rapidly was the one that needed to be treated gave an ally because you could then work with the wolf as an ally in healing. So diagnosis. Then there's the whole idea that images can help the body as well as the soul if they're the right images and that the body perhaps won't distinguish between an inner image, an image that is right one held with some tenacity and a physical event. There's a lot of evidence for that. Well, where do you get the images that can help your body to get well or stay well? Your dreams are a factory of images. And I would say that any image that comes to you in a dream can be worked with in the direction of healing. It doesn't mean that all dreams come in the service of healing and wholeness. I've heard that from people I respect. I don't agree. I would say that all dreams can be worked or played with in the direction of healing and wholeness if you're willing to take it on. You can have a terrifying dream. I think of cancer patients who dreamed of sharks. If you can be trained and taught and helped to work with those dreams, let the story go on. Travel back through the portal of the dream, a core technique that I give people. You can travel back through the portal of the dream and you can do something, get, carry the story forward, forward to healing and resolution. You dream of a shark and you've got cancer, you're prone to cancer. You might be on the edge of discovering that the shark is an ideal shamanic ally for healing your body. Why? The sharks don't get cancer very often. It's not true they never get it, but they very rarely get it. 
And the shark has a track record, certainly a track record in my life and practice of healing, helping to heal people through imaginal healing uh, with the problem of cancer. So there's that, the whole range of developing your own pharmacy of images. Then there's the soul aspect. And we might mention a couple of functions of that. Dreams show you what the soul wants, and sometimes it shows you where the soul can be found. Sometimes it shows you that that little girl's self, so beautiful, so tender, so full of dreams, is hiding out at grandma's house or in a garden on the dark side of the moon because the world got cold and cruel, and she didn't want to be around, and she went away. And maybe that dream will give you a pathway to go and find her and hug her and wish her well in her own time, which you can do where time travels in dreams and maybe bring some part of her vital energy back to you. And then still in the category of the soul, dreams introduce our authentic spiritual allies. We might be scared when we first meet them. If you meet the bear or the tiger for the first time, it's probably not going to be cute, not for the first time. You're probably going to have to brave up. I had to brave up when the bear first came for me. And I've known many animal allies in my dreams and my shamanic practice all my life. But when the bear came on me, on Syria, in a serious way, when I started living in North America, I was terrified. It took real courage for me to go back into that dream, even though I know it's a, it's a wide awake dream, it's a wide awake vision, and face the bear, and enter its embrace, and receive the bear, Okwari, great mother bear, as she became, as ally in healing for myself and others. So this is rich. And then, of course, we can learn from the ancient practice. We can learn from the practice of Asclepius in the temples of dream healing, which were popular from uh, part of the world from as far east as Ankara to the British Isles. Uh, the sanctuaries of Asclepius and his divine family, who include, include Hygeia, Hygeia, and Panacea, what good names, with his dogs and his snakes and his roosters. Uh, people used to journey from all over the Greco-Roman world hoping to meet in the middle of the night in a liminal space, typically between sleep and awake, the sacred guide and healer appearing face to face or appearing through one of the companion animals or appearing in feminine form as one of the goddesses who surround him or in child form. We can do our own version of dream incubation. We can set that up. We can set it up with a minimum of ritual and that can also be part, be part of it. We can learn to ask for healing the way that a man who walked very close to Asclepius, Elias Aristides, famous orator of the second century did. He would say, I ask for the measure of health my body requires to serve the purposes of the soul. So we can also learn now, building on, in this case, Western tradition, we can learn from Western spiritual tradition of traditions of healing, how to ask nicely of the greater powers to come and support us and how through that, in doing that, to enter a dreamlike space where the healing can happen overnight. Robert, how is it that you go about teaching active dreaming? What are, what's the process like if people come to study with you and are there core skills or core things that are um, like skill sets or techniques people are learning? Well, there are core techniques which are original, uh, which they're going to learn. And one of them is they're going to learn how to talk and walk their dreams. What do I mean? Our society has lacked protocols that make it safe, energizing, attractive, rewarding to tell dreams to each other or tell personal stories. So I train people by what I call the lightning dream work process, which is a simple four-step uh, routine to tell their story. And by the way, learning to tell your story and become a better storyteller is profoundly empowering and healing in itself. If you can learn to tell your story so other people want to hear you, well, 
That's a huge transition for many people. In the process of learning to do that, you might be bringing into your life the bigger stories you need to recognize and live. So step one is to train people to tell their stories really well, really simply, give them a title. And when you give a title to a dream or similar experience, meaning, orientation, focus, jumps right up. Then we learn to ask a few simple questions. What are your feelings around this dream? Your feelings coming out of the dream because they're going to be the best guidance on whether this is urgent or not, personal or not, negative or, or not. And what do you recognize from your dream in the rest of your life, including the life of your imagination? And could it happen in the future, any part of it, somewhere or other? Because dreams show us the future all the time and most of us don't have a clue. And even if, we're, even if we're poised to think about that, we, we miss the message, we, we don't clarify. So could the dream play out in the future? And then what do you want to know? Let's have a conversation. Then step three is to say to the dreamer, if this were my dream or if this were my life, here's what I'd think about. In other words, I don't tolerate anyone telling me and I won't tell anyone else what their dreams or their life means. Our purpose as teachers of this kind of dreaming is to help each other become authors of meaning for our dreams in our lives. So I will say to you, if you'd give me a dream or a story, well, if it were my dream, I'd think about such and such. I think about such and such. And I can say anything I like. You don't have to be an expert to do this. In fact, it might be best if you draw upon your own life, your own memories, your own dreams. This reminds me of this dream that I had 10 years ago. And that might be a way of heading towards the meaning of the new dream. And then you want an action plan because dreams require action. What are you going to do with this dream in terms of maybe some creative embodiment? I start every day by, I was drawing one when, when I joined your call. I start every day by drawing sketches, little paintings, really. I start coloring them in from my dreams. This delights the artist in me. It delights the little boy in me. That's one of the things I love to do every day. In addition to recording a dream, make a drawing, make a painting from it. Have some fun. But it might require research. I love researching the details of my dreams. And Jung was the same. I remember when a Jungian analyst told Jung, I dreamed I landed in India. Jung ran to the shelf, got the big Oxford atlas of it, opened, off it, opened it to a page with a map of India and said, show me exactly where you landed. I'm like that. I like doing research. Let's nail it down. Where exactly were you? The dream might contain a message that is to be shared with someone else. But do something with your dream. And for temporary closure, you could come up with a bumper sticker, a mantra, a chiron, you know, uh, watch, watch your breaks. I mean, the car, they might, literally or symbolically, that might be the message. So this is one of the core techniques. Here's a way of sharing your dreams and your stories. It becomes fun. It's socially rewarding. It becomes a tremendous impetus and encouragement to remember your dreams. So with this technique, you're starting to overcome uh, the inhibition, the, the, the bereft, bereftness from dreams, the dream drought that is a malady in our culture. So many people don't remember their dreams, partly because they haven't had a socially rewarding way to uh, talk about them. Then you're going to learn dream reentry. This is another signature technique of active dreaming. What does that mean? It means understanding that any image that belongs to you, it might be a dream, it might be something else, and has some energy for you, has some traction for you, can be your personal doorway to make a journey. What kind of journey? In the workshops, you're going to have shamanic drumming probably or nature sounds, water sounds, wind sounds to help you journey through the doorway of that image, that dream or memory with something that you want to find out and with a bit of a travel plan. I want to go and meet the bear and understand why the bear was in my bedroom last night. That would be a travel plan. I, well, it's also a question. If I want to know why the bear was in my my, my uh, room last night, this is the sovereign remedy for nightmare terrors. If something scares you in a dream, go back 
confront it, deal with it on its own ground. Don't run away from it. You do that. It'll come after you in waking life and bite you in the rear end or something else. It's also a ticket for, de for destination travel. You might have been having a good time in your dream. You'd like more. You'd like dessert in that Paris restaurant where you were eating in a dream. You'd like to have more time in that tropical lagoon. You'd like to explore, you know, other levels of that Atlantean colony that you visited last night. You'd like to talk more to Tolkien, who stayed overnight in your house in your dream and has something more to share with you about turning world mythology into fictive worlds. And then yet another core technique is what I call playing sidewalk tarot, or I call it chiromancy. This is about living more consciously in the dream of regular life, about recognizing how signs and symbols popping up around us will speak to us like dreams if we pay attention. To become a chiromancer, a word I invented, K-A-I-R-O-M-A-N-C-Y, to be, to be a chiromancer is literally to be someone who does divination by special moments, kairos moments. Kairos is the Greek god of special moments, of jump time, of opportunity time, of special moments when time works differently. So I train people to be wide awake dreamers, all of their senses open. And this can lead to fantastic guidance. And it means that you are prepared to meet the goddess on any street corner. And there's a champagne fizz of magic. Uh, in your everyday walks around the neighborhood. I'm really interested in this idea of um, dream re-entry. You know, there's the dream you have at night, the the dream, the waking dream, if you will, that we live during the day, the possible intersections, being able to step into the dream of night via a portal while we're, you know, awake, but in meditation or drumming. What do you see as the vehicle for dreaming? You know, many traditions talk about an astral body or an astral plane. Then we have, say, the concept of the three worlds um, of shamanism said to be visited in trance or ceremony. Where is it that we are when we're dreaming? Is this a hidden dimension of reality, a territory that can be mapped? You know, how is it that you interact with these concepts? What very interesting questions, Christabel. I was just thinking again this morning and just printed out a copy of a thesis on the subtle body. The subtle body is a term for the astral body, if you like. Uh, the, the vehicle of consciousness, the soul vehicle, uh, which was actually coined in England by one of the Cambridge Platonists in the 17th century. But it, it does. I love it. I love this term subtle body. Uh, anyway, under many names, it's been understood, probably in every spiritual tradition that has a worthwhile practice an effective practice, that we don't, we're not just body and mind. We're not just body and brain to begin with. I mean, let's put that right over in the left field. And we're not just body and mind or body and soul or body and spirit. We are at the least tripartite beings. There's a physical body. There's an energetic body, a subtle body of some kind that can dissociate from the physical. It can travel beyond the physical or some part of it can in waking life. And it survives the physical body after death. And then there is a higher spirit, a higher aspect of mind that maybe is never altogether confined to the body and definitely survives the death of the body. When we look in practical terms, in other words, at the experience of dreaming as people go through it in their nights or their days, we notice that there comes a moment at which they tend to wake up to the fact that they're not just traveling around as disembodied thought forms. You can do that. You can expand your mental field to bring inside it all sorts of things, and that might not involve uh, the subtle body in the sense I'm talking about it now. But in typical dreams, whether you intend to or not, you are traveling in an energy vehicle denser or subtler, depending on exactly what aspects of you are traveling and taking off from the body to go somewhere else. And according to how much of that denser energy is traveling with you, 
you'll feel more or less travel worn or jet lagged when you come back from your nights. I mean, I travel a lot. Sometimes I'm exhausted in the morning and sometimes I'm full of energy. I recognize that that has a lot to do with where I traveled, what vehicle I traveled in and what I did with it because there'll be repercussions on the physical body for what you do in the subtle body, good, bad or mixed. So the understanding of the subtle body about which books can and have been written, although they're not as accessible uh, to Western minds as they should be. We hear more about it from Eastern traditions, but there is a Western tradition of this, which is just as complex and just as sophisticated. And there is an indigenous tradition. Every indigenous society that I know recognizes there are at least three aspects of the human, perhaps many more. Anybody who's been to the Egyptian room at a museum knows the Egyptians recognized multiple aspects of soul or spirit. Scholars still discuss what exactly the car is, what the bar is, what the AKH is, etc what the Sekhem is. Let's just acknowledge that in Egypt, when you just walk through an Egyptian room and look at the pictures and look at the captions, and look at the sculptures, you'll recognize that here was a culture that knew something about spiritual travel and spiritual life that recognized multiple aspects of energy and consciousness that can travel beyond the body and survive physical death. So that's on that front. The, the simple model of the shaman's cosmos of so the upper world, middle world, the lower world is okay for beginners. It's absolutely okay for beginners. It's fine. It's not heuristic. Enter it 101. Shamanism 101. No harm with it. But guess what? The cosmos is much vaster than that, much more free form than that. It's not just upper world, middle world, lower world. For example, how does the whole idea of the imaginal plane consort with that? I'm a great devotee of the imaginal plane. It's a, it's a phrase that came into the English language via a French scholar of Iran, Iranian mysticism, Henri Corbin who took uh, the Eastern terms, uh, this is, these are the Arabic words, alam al-metal, alam al-chayal, uh, which can be translated as the realm of the images, the realm of the true images and the realm of the archetypes uh, and put it into French and then we got it into English. And the idea is that there's a realm of true imagination where things that are without earthly form begin to take on form, where teachers from beyond the earth, some of them former terrestrials, some of them higher beings, interact with humans where borders between the departed and the living if they're sufficiently enlightened are rather fluid how does that fit into the upper world lower world middle world i'm not sure that it does but uh, i lead many many adventures in the imaginal realm and i have played the role of co-architect of some really interesting structures in the imaginal realm which become portals for time travel for meeting higher teachers for entering the kind of total li library where any kind of information or inspiration is available to you and where every member of a group journey can contribute to growing that environment adding a personal touch this is tremendous fun it's tremendous fun it's about world making it's about learning that the imagination has the ability to generate worlds it's not idle fancy true imagination is the engineer of worlds and as william blake said again with poetic clarity one of the things worth knowing is that when you die, you enter the imagination. That's where you go. You enter the imagination. What you encounter there depends on your imagination or lack of it and how you've learned to use or failed to learn to use your imagination. So all of this, you know, Plato said that, well, Socrates said in Plato that philosophy is a preparation for dying. I would say that a preparation, a good preparation for dying is a good preparation for living too. That applies to dreaming. Dreaming is the best preparation I know for what happens to soul or spirit beyond the body. Because as the Lakota say, the path of the soul after death is the path of the body in dreams. In other words, we travel, we get up there. We visit places where soul or spirit goes on 
And it's very useful to have some knowledge about these things firsthand, not just take it from faith. However faithful you might think the raconteur is, you want firsthand experience of these things. And that's what I facilitate. My, my lectures, my workshops, my seminars are not just about me talking, though I talk a lot and read a lot and like to share a lot. They're about facilitating a direct experience for anybody who comes into this field of dreaming. You mentioned this vehicle, the astral body or a subtle body that can dissociate from the physical and travel around in, in a dreamscape or on some planes or many planes. How important do you think it is for people doing <clears throat> this kind of work to be able to, let's say, actively or on command, move into the subtle body and actually dissociate consciously from the physical and explore dreams from that vantage point versus, let's say, something not as uh, clarified in the subtle body? Well, I was, you know, I remember all the excitement over Bob Munro, Robert Munro's work, Journeys Beyond the Body, etc., when it first started coming out. And I'm old enough to remember uh, the effect of those, those books at all. Everybody now wants to have an OBE, and they're all setting up plans for astral projection, which is the occultist's, occultist's preferred term, OBE. And I thought, I have a hard time understanding what all this excitement is about. But then I have a trajectory of my own, which starts with being thrown out of my body involuntarily, I think, as a kid, and then uh, and then having a gift for dissociation, to use the shrink's term. So, I mean, I've never found it difficult, personally, to travel beyond the body, whether or not I want to put my focus on what vehicle I'm in, or simply scout around and set a destination for travel and go there. I think people can sometimes get themselves into a lot of trouble when they think it's important to go through some mumbo chumbo or some procedure uh, for rolling or wriggling themselves out of the physical body. Uh, I think some of the suggestions for how that should be done are unhelpful and even dangerous if people are embarking on them without good psychic protection, without good psychic protection, because there can be risks uh, in voluntary intentional travel of this kind unless you are able to set your psychic boundaries well unless you travel with some degree of psychic protection and have some fairly clear idea of where you're going to go and why you're going to do it having said that which might sound overly cautious on the other hand you're having an out-of-body experience every night in your dreams i believe everybody is traveling beyond the body and brain in their dreams whether or not they remember whether or not they're willing to entertain that kind of conversation i think it's going on anyway all the time and if it's going on in your dreams in a spontaneous way then you know that it's timely it's authentic it's for you and through the dream re-entry process you can follow up and you can do more of it uh but, you know, if you're going to embark on some forms uh, of recommended astral projection or intentional OBA, OBE, you need to have a common sense understanding of basic psychic protection and maintenance. You really do. This possibly leads us quite naturally into the um, question about the idea of um, dream guides, how one might establish connection with a dream guide or if there's any specific guidance for, for working like that. Well, they're looking for you. Your guides are looking for you. It's pro pro probable in life that the fundamental life teacher guide is your higher self on the, on the level of consciousness and reality above the one you're on. That's what Plotinus, the great Neoplatonist philosopher, told us. Your, your tutelary daimon, the guardian of your life and your soul, is yourself on the level above you. 
that might be the case, in which case it's no stranger and perhaps it will present itself in your dreams. Other forms of guides turn up. I mean, your departed relatives who have some interest in you might turn up as everyday counselors, as many of us have experienced. That can be a beautiful thing. The animal powers, the animal spirits are part of the dreaming of every ancestral and indigenous culture, from whose point of view, if you don't have, is that if you don't have a working relationship with the animal spirits, you're not fully alive. You're not fully embodied. I mean, so they might turn up the way the bear came for me and long before the bear, other animals came for me. Uh, so I'm fairly relaxed about this. I lead journeys in which people, I, I did some this past week, foundational journey journeys in some sense, they're shamanism 101. But let's not forget, by the way, that real shamanism is and always has been a method of dreaming. In North America, the dominant indigenous word for shaman means dreamer in Mohawk, it's Rebzenzots. It means dreamer, one who dreams a lot. It's the same across North America. So let's not get confused about this. The true shaman is a dreamer. I mean, a very good dreamer. And the, the really good dreamer is able to travel in a way associated with shamans. So I lead journeys. You go to a special place. You go to your tree of vision, your life tree. You'll meet perhaps uh, an animal spirit. Maybe you'll connect or reconnect with the bird tribes. You'll make a journey of ascension. Here we go, upper world, if you like. And you'll meet the teacher on the level that is appropriate for you right now. So I can guide you uh, on an intentional journey. It's probably going to work. But what I would love is for you in the course of going into a slightly prepared architecture to find yourself also traveling inside dreams and your own imagination, including dreams you might have forgotten but now come back to you because I value beyond all else your ability to find your personal doorways have your own untrammeled personal experience, which is then going to be checked and verified and shared with others, of course, and honored, acted upon. But the guide is looking for us. And the guide has many guises. I think there's a cosmic costume department for spiritual guides, whether they turn up in dreams or otherwise. They put on different masks, they put on different faces, they put on different outfits, including animal skins and feathers, according to our level of understanding. In the Gnostic Acts of Thomas, Thomas says, I saw him, meaning the savior, I saw him in the way that I was able to receive him. And that's how it's going to be with your guides, with your most fundamental authentic guides, probably. Thank you, Robert. I love that, uh, the cosmic costume. I'm wondering, in terms of facilitation, seeing as how you are um, bringing people through a journeying process, we always like to check in with practitioners about their sensing as a facilitator. What is it like for you doing facilitation in terms of um, your tracking or your participation with the other people that you're facilitating the journey for? Uh, well, it's evolved a bit because most of my teaching is online these days. Prior to the pandemic, I was traveling seven months a year and leading in-person workshops all over the world map. And when I was leading an in-person workshop, I tend to limit the number in a room to 45 because beyond 45, I couldn't keep track of individuals. But when I was leading a group up to that size, or perhaps a bit smaller than that, I found that while drumming for the group, I could journey for myself and I could look in on individual experiences, look in on them, stick my head into the dream, while monitoring the, the, the psychic atmosphere and keeping up with the drumming. So, And sometimes I'd have the sense I'm watching the whole thing at once. So I was operating on multiple levels of consciousness and seeing how people were doing. Uh, now that I'm doing it online, with much larger groups, by the way, and it's online, so I don't have the body language and I don't have a whole group introducing themselves and sitting in the spotlight, so to speak, to begin with. Uh, I don't feel as connected individual by individual with their experiences. Nonetheless, 
We still have a lot of interaction. We have some face-to-face -face interaction. We have feedback. We have wonderfully active and beautiful and creative community pages where people share and discuss. So I'm able to look in to some extent on the experience of many people and I like to see how people are coming along. And one of the great delights for me in what I do is watching how rapidly and deeply people progress. For example, they end their dream drought almost immediately. Many people come to me for a dream workshop who don't remember their dreams and sometimes haven't remembered them for 30 years. And we deal with that very quickly. How do we deal with it? Well, we need another hour to talk about that. Uh, they get into a group energy and they're in the best kind of family, best kind of intentional family, where they know that the others there are there to support their deepening practice and their soul odysseys, and they really do. I see them growing as storytellers, as artists, as creative spirits. We are sharing pictures, we're sharing narratives, we're sharing poetry, we're sharing the creative products. And I see people overcoming fears. I see them going back and facing the nightmare terror and finding it's an ally or something that can be dealt with for good and all inside the dream space. I find them, perhaps this is the most beautiful thing, back in touch with the magical child of their own being who might have checked out at some point, that magical child who is the master of dreams and imagination. When you bring her back, everything changes. You've clearly achieved much in this latter half of your, your life, your career in this work with active dreaming. Is there something um, for you professionally, uh, stones unturned, ambitions for the future that you'd like to embrace? Uh, I'm enjoying doing exactly what I'm doing. I, I, I really am. And it's growing because and it's growing in its own quiet way, but its own passionate way, because people are going out now carrying the flame. We, we, I'm committed to uh, helping to rebirth a dreaming society in our world, in our time. That means a society where people share their dreams in both senses, dreams of the night and dreams of life, and support each other in doing what the soul is asking. And I now have uh, helped to empower Lots of people who are also performing that mission. Some of them have pieces of paper saying Robert loves you. In other words, certificates as graduated teachers of active dreaming who've mastered the core techniques. I've written a book-length manual for each level of the practice for our teachers. Some of them are doing it in a more informal way, but they're doing it. And it's changing things. When people simply learn how to tell a story, personal story or dream story the right way, get non-intrusive feedback and be guided towards action, all sorts of things are happening all at once. So I'm very happy about that. Uh, you can call it professional if you like. I suppose it has become professional in the sense that I do it all the time. But there was no, there was no career track for any activity like this when I started. Now I think one is emerging. Uh, so that's something that gives me pleasure. For people who are interested in finding your work, um, seeing what you're up to, there's uh, mossdreams.com. Just wondering, where can people find you? Is there anything that you're doing upcoming? Well, I'm launching, I, I teach a lot of online courses for the Shift Network. There's a new one coming up in May called Adventures in Soul Travel, and you can join us for a free introductory. In introduction, I teach my online training now for teachers of active dreaming. The next level one starts in February. There's time to prepare for that if you're feeling the call. I have a couple, I have a couple of public Facebook pages, uh, Robert Moss Books, Active Dreaming. So you can find me in a number of ways. You'll find I've written a lot of books, a lot of books. Uh, you'll find that I do teach a very few advanced retreats in person, but that these days most of it uh, is online and we are having tremendous fun. I never knew 
until recently just how much could be accomplished in the online medium. People are not sitting around looking, twiddling with their cell phones when they're in one of my classes. Robert, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today, for sharing your energy, wisdom, expertise. It's much appreciated. We've very much enjoyed the conversation. It was fun. Thank you. May your best dreams come true and may you remember them. Thanks for listening to the episode. What really supports the podcast is providing a rating and review of the show on your preferred listening platform. This helps us get the message out to a wider audience. If the topics we discussed today appeal to you, do take a moment to subscribe. Lastly, we invite you to check out our website, fielddynamicshealing.com, to learn about our training programs, private session work, and to see how we're setting the standard in contemporary energy healing. Many thanks, and see you next time.